Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of In The Ring with Acacia Courtney. Happy to have you with me today. I have a fun show planned. Um, we are just a few days out from the first two-year-old sale of the season, OBS March two-year-olds in training sale. March 15th and 16th coming up and you'll be able to follow along on the live stream online, watch the sales breezes, look at the pedigree pages. Highly encourage you to do that if you're at all interested in the sales. It's fun to really follow the ones that even if you're not buying, if you're not a buyer in the sales, um, it's fun to follow the ones that you think may sell for quite a lot and then watch them go through the ring and see how much they actually do end up going for. Um, from what I can tell, it looks like it'll be a really strong market at this year's sale. And if you are a buyer or a consigner, you're listening to this, wishing you all the best with the first two-year-old sale of the year here in the U.S. Um, at OBS coming up. But I enjoy the two-year-old sales. I think it's fun and exciting to watch them breeze, uh, watch them go right onto the racetrack uh, not too long after that. And then you will get a chance to kind of follow them as they're racing as well. Look for some of those debuting this summer, for instance, at Saratoga or Del Mar, those high-priced ones, those really precocious ones, those exciting two-year-olds that we will see those big performances from. So this is where it all kicks off. As far as those two-year-olds do go, and we'll talk to a bloodstock agent who kind of has not specialized, but I guess specialized in buying at some of the two-year-old sales, purchased two Kentucky Derby winners, and we'll also talk to uh, a farm in Ocala consigner, journeyman stud, and also bring in that thoroughbred aftercare element that I always love a chance to bring in when I can. So a fun show coming up. Let's dive right in. Very happy to welcome in next my friend and bloodstock agent, Dennis O'Neill, who has on his resume that he has purchased two Kentucky Derby winners, among many other graded stakes winners. Dennis, thank you for uh, for letting me kind of guilt you into doing the podcast today. Oh, this is awesome. I love it. Um, uh, we've kind of known each other for a little bit and was really looking forward to it. Well, I'm excited to get a chance to pick your brain here a little bit. As mentioned, two Kentucky Derby winners, Nyquist, and I'll have another. But I wanted to go back to kind of where it started as you didn't exactly grow up in racing like many people did. In fact, I know you worked for a phone company first. Tell me how you got into the world of horse racing. Yeah, my dad was a gambler, so he used to take us to the track all the time growing up, Doug and I. We just kind of fell in love with it. And uh, two weeks out of high school, I actually hired down with GTE and uh, made it about 19 years. I, I retired in 98, I guess it was. And uh, just loved the horses, loved the sales. I started going to the sales at Barrett's and uh, bought a, a filly named Classy Cara for like 30000 for John Zamora, uh, who was a big breeder. And we became, we became buddies. And she went on and ran, I think, third in the Kentucky Oaks. And, uh, you know, I was like, God dang, I could do this. This is, you know, so, you know, I hung out with Hector Palma and a lot of people at the sales to kind of learn what was going on. And over the last 20, 25 years, feel like I've kind of perfected my craft. And uh, I just love it. I mean, the sales are a riot. Absolutely love it. And there's such a different vibe to the sales, certainly, than even being at the races, you know, for those that haven't experienced it. And you and your brother, Doug, as mentioned, he kind of, he takes care of the racing training side of things, so you handle the sales. Tell me a little bit about that division between the two of you. Yeah, uh, I make sure he doesn't show up at the sales. He, uh, <laughs> he, uh, we, we uh, a lot of time, you know, I tell him, like, after the March sale or whatever sale, it's like Christmas, just here's your presents and here's your horses and be happy with what you got um, because a lot of times we'll go at it at the sales or we did. And uh, he, he, sometimes he likes to typecast horses. You know, this is what a good horse looks like. And this is what a, you know, a not so good horse looks like. And I've over the years, you know, God, some of the good horses we've had have been just completely different sizes and, you know, confirmation and on and on. And I, I kind of preach that to him all the time. They come in different sizes and they, they, uh, you know, you can't typecast horses. And so I think he's come to realize and he trusts me. I trust him. You know, I think he does an unbelievable job at what he does. And I think we're at a point where he kind of trusts me after the success we've had to, uh, to, to defer to me at the sale. So it, it works out really well. And when, when you got into racing, it was kind of just the two of you as far as your operation, right? 
It was. It was. He uh, joined Jude Feld walking Hots right out of high school and uh, down at Del Mar and fell in love with it. He was, what, 18, I guess. And, you know, we started going back and forth. And then I was making money at uh, GTE, living at home. And I got into ownership a little bit. And I can remember Hollywood Park. Uh, God, we probably had two or three horses at the time. You know, I had a couple buddies and we had some cheap claimers and uh, we'd take them down to the receiving barn and me and Doug would saddle them and I'd walk them over from the receiving barn over to the saddling paddock and saddle them. And, you know, we did everything, you know, groomed them, walked them. And uh, it was a riot. Absolutely enjoyed it. And then going from that all the way to the success that you've had now, um, I wanted to talk, of course, uh, about your kind of two biggest names, I think, that many people familiar with, starting with I'll Have Another, because I think he's a great story because he was purchased for just $35,000 as a two-year-old at the OBS April sale. I mean, tell me what it went through to to purchase a horse like that, and then when was kind of the moment when you said, wow, we've really got something special here? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I thought he'd be probably 60 or 70. I was kind of, at that time, had a relationship with Paul Redham, but we were just kind of starting out. And uh, I bought him for 35 with really no one in mind. There was a uh, an owner that we had had for quite a while that I knew it would be in his price range, but he wanted fillies, so he turned her down. And then, uh, oh God, about 20 minutes after I bought him, uh, somebody offered me 70 for him, said they had just walked in and, and I came really close to doing anything. I, but I figured before I do that, I'll call Paul. And I called Paul and Paul was like, uh, what do I want a $35,000 horse for? And I was like, Paul, I'm telling you, it's a really, really nice colt. So he ended up taking them and it's amazing how things, you know, work out. And, uh, um, you know, I, I remember playing golf with Paul at Shady Canyon about God, three, four months later and Doug called me saying that, uh, oh, my God, this freaking uh, Flower Alley can really run. I said, well, that's great. You know, if he wins for Maiden 40 or Maiden 50, you know, it's a good buy because we only paid 35 for him. And he was like, mm, he's a lot better than that. I was like, really? He goes, yeah, this horse is never going to run for a tag. So that's when I got excited because Doug doesn't generally get excited about horses. Actually, he never does. And uh, so I knew when he got all pumped about him early on that uh, uh, we would be in good shape. One first time out at Hollywood Park, second in the best pal uh, as a two-year-old, and then going on, I mean, his three-year-old season, the Robert B. Lewis and Anita Derby, Kentucky Derby Preakness. I mean, what was that that run like when you just had win after win after win? You know, I, I, I there's no owner on the planet that we would have won the Derby with, with that horse other than Paul Redham. All the credit goes to Paul. I remember when he was coming back uh, – Paul said, let's run in the Lewis. And I was like, are you crazy? You're going to, off a six-month layoff, you're going to run this horse long in a grade two against the best three-year-olds out here. I said, let's, let's run him in an allowance race, get a race into him. And Paul was like, dude, it's March. We, we don't have time for that. And I remember he was like 41 to 1. And uh, I was in the paddock with a hoodie on. And, I, and Paul looked over at me and he said, uh, you know, you can put that hoodie over your head if you're that embarrassed. <laughs> and uh <laughs> We watched the race up in the th- up in the uh, boxes, and I remember when he turned for home and he surged to the front, and Paul looked over at me and goes, I told you. And I was like, oh, God, I can't believe this. And, uh, I mean, it just worked out perfectly. Then we gave him some time off to the Sania Derby, and he ran huge. And uh, we were pretty confident going into the Derby, but we had ran horses in the Derby before, and we knew – you know, how hard it is. It's, you don't necessarily have to have the best horse. Mm-hmm. You just got to have a good trip. And he just got a dream trip. That and the Preakness, he got perfect trips. And that helped so much just being, uh, uh, you know, on the outside stalking, sitting right in behind him. And um, so it, it was something. I remember, uh, like I say, turning for home, everything just kind of slowed down with I'll have another. And I just sat there going, oh, my God. I, I turned for home. I thought, Bodie Meister was gone, and I thought, well, God, this is incredible. We're going to run, like, third or fourth in the Derby. And then about the 16th pole, everything kind of slowed down. I remember getting goosebumps all over me going, oh, my God, he's catching them. And, uh, you know, when they hit the wire, we just went, I mean, absolutely berserk. It was the craziest day of my life. And I remember running down and jumping into Doug's arms, and um, it was just a crazy, crazy day I'll never forget for the rest of my life, that's for sure. 
I can't imagine what the party was like that night. It was. It went on all night. And uh, as you probably know, I'm not really much of a partier. And uh, we uh, rented out the top of the Galt House up in the restaurant. And uh, yeah, it went on all night. It went on until two or three in the morning. And uh, I actually had a beer or two. So I, I was really, really crazy that night. The feeling of winning the Kentucky Derby, I'm sure, unlike any other, but you mentioned doing it with Paul Redham. What does your relationship with Paul mean, and and where did it come from? How did that relationship begin? Doug, uh, through a a mutual friend, Doug met him. Um, Mark Schlesinger, actually, who lives in Arkansas, uh, was really good friends with Paul. And they claimed a horse, Mark and Paul did, and gave it to Doug. And Doug kept calling Paul like every two or three days to give him updates. And Paul was just really impressed with Doug's professionalism and kind of one thing led to another. Then we had some success and then, you know, uh, Paul's a big golfer. So um, me and him started playing golf and actually became good friends before we did anything. And then, uh, you know, I told him, you know, I kind of work the sales and have done pretty good with limited, you know, money. And so he gave me a chance and we did really, really well early on. And, um, you know, like I say, we've had some pretty good success with Pavel and Bondholder and, um, you know, Nyquist. And uh, um, so it's been, a, it's been a good run. La- last couple of years have been bleak, to say the least. And uh, that, that's the greatest thing about Paul is he's very loyal. He knows the business better than anybody. He knows the ups and downs. And uh, he's just been extremely loyal. And he's always trying to pick me up instead of me. Uh, the other way around. Well, that loyalty is so important in this game, which does have such incredible highs and lows. And you've had some pretty good highs with Paul as well. You mentioned Nyquist, and I wanted to circle back to him as uh, he was purchased by you as, as a two-year-old at the Phasic Tipton Gulfstream sale, Miami sale. Um, what did you see with Nyquist? And and tell me a little bit about the, the underbitter story you always get with Nyquist. I know. I, I absolutely loved him at the sale. I called Paul early on and said, man, there's a there's an Uncle Moen here that I think is an absolute freak. He's gorgeous. He's my kind of horse. He was kind of long and lean. And uh, I, I work these sales alone, especially Miami. I don't really have a lot of friends there. And I... Uh, you know, I do everything by myself. So I wasn't in the scoop with, you know, afterwards I found out there was all kinds of rumors about him, but, uh, it was very bizarre because I told Paul he'd be 800 or a million. And I said, can I just go in, you know, six or 700 just to see, you know, if we can steal him?" And he said, yeah, he goes, just don't get dumb. And, and so they started bidding and I didn't jump in and they were at like 375 and I bid 400 and it was like, crickets there was like i was looking around like oh my god nobody's bidding and in the end there was actually no bids the reserve was 399 and i was the only one that bid on the horse everybody else had gotten off of him and i found out afterwards someone said he had two or three vet issues and uh, i know some of the europeans were on him and they were upset about some vet issue too but you know, he's probably the soundest horse in the barn as far as legs and all that stuff go he was very sound he just needed space between his races the races used Mm -hmm. to really kick his butt and that's what uh in the end uh, you know running back in two weeks and the preakness was tough on him and um he he just needed 30 or 40 days between races well incredible he was on the racetrack and kind of that rare uh that rare double of the breeders cup juvenile into the kentucky derby and tell me a little bit about that road that he took you on from two to three is he just really was kind of the, the it horse from that time frame. Yeah. I mean, the Breeders' Cup was awesome because he was way wide and he was so impressive, we thought, there. And, you know, then we finally gave him some time off and, you know, kind of eased him into the into the derby. And, uh, um, you know, he got a perfect trip in the derby. It was it, it just worked out really, really well. Doug did an incredible job training him, and, and, and I knew going in. It was a lot different than I'll have another in that, you know, he, he was undefeated and there was so much pressure on us and it was, it was more of a relief. I hate to say that kind of sounds Mm -hmm. stupid, but it was, it was more of a relief to win that race than, than, uh, you know, obviously we were going nuts and happy, but you know, he he was the undefeated champ going in, everybody expected him to win. So it was kind of, was all we could do is lose in that situation. So, uh, you know, when he kicked away in mid stretch and kept going, we, you know, it was just a huge relief. And, uh, 
so proud of him. So proud of Mario. Mario gave him an unbelievable ride, and he obviously winning two derbies for him was great for his career. And uh, you know, that's something I'll take to my grave. Two Derby winners, unbelievable. <laughs> And incredible to see now the legacy that Nyquist has had as a stallion. I know you've got a few Nyquist babies. Um, the great one with his um, incredible maiden score a couple back. And and something that you've wanted to support as well. He had the champion two-year-old filly as a stallion. How great has that been to see his his legacy carry on? Yeah, you know, with I'll have another. You, you, you know, what is there, three things with the stallions, the breeding and how they look and then how they perform on the track. And I always was stressed about I'll have another with this breeding because um, he wasn't that well-bred being by Flower Alley. But, boy, this horse going in the stud, he's absolutely gorgeous. Um, you know, he's a champion racehorse. And, you know, he's very sound, and his pedigree is really, really good. Mm -hmm. So I, we thought going in, he had a really big chance. And what, he only has, I want to say, 92 babies because he started late uh, his first crop. So his first crop should be his worst. The next two crops should be really, really good. There's about 140 uh, two-year-olds and yearlings. So that's why it's really, really exciting going forward. Paul's got uh, eight breeding, so we get eight breedings a year and I get to pick out the mares. Paul's got about 50 mares and we send seven back every year uh, to breed to them. And then we bring those mares out here. And so to make the Nyquist Calbreds, but uh, it, you know, yeah, he's got some beautiful, beautiful babies out here for us. And uh, I can't wait for the sales. I'm, you know, going through the catalogs uh, this morning and seeing, I think there's 10 of them at the OBS sale and another six or seven at the Miami sale. So it'll be exciting to see how they do. We talked about some of your purchases at the sales, and the reason I wanted to talk to you now is that you really do focus on the two-year-old sales. This time of year is, like you said, like like Christmas, I know, for you, and the excitement and the planning for these sales coming up with the two-year-olds in training. Why do you focus so much on the two-year-old sales as opposed to yearlings or other sales throughout the year? You know, I've had actually some success with the yearlings, but most of my clients, it's mostly client-driven. And uh, um, I actually bought Independence Hall for Bob Verratti and those guys uh, as a yearling. And we bought Pavel as a, as a yearling. So I, I generally buy two or three, maybe four yearlings a year is about all I do. And then probably 20 to 32-year-olds. And I think that two-year-olds, uh, for most of my clients, they want action and they want to see them run. I mean, they, they'd rather um, pay a little bit more than, you know, it's, it's just hard to call a client and say, man, I found a beautiful horse. That's got a really pretty walk and, uh, you should pay 500,000 for it. It's just, I don't have clients that can kind of piss away money like that. So it's easier to call them and say, Hey, this horse went, you know, 10, one and looked unbelievable doing it. He vets perfect. We can go right on with them. That's an easier sell for me than it is, uh, with the yearlings. And, and I love the sales. Absolutely love the atmosphere and uh dealing with the people most of the consigners are really really nice people and uh you know it's just uh it's the highlight of my year the the sales i can't wait to get to obs on saturday it should be a lot of fun and tell me a little bit about your process looking through each and every one of the sales workouts what are some of the things that you're looking for in those breezes when they're going a furlong or two yeah my big thing is their action i uh i'll go through like uh, i think there's a end up about 500 horses in this sale uh next week and i'll go through all their breezes two or three times on each horse and probably narrow it down to 100 or so and then we'll go start looking at them and uh, narrow that down to about 30 or 40 and then we'll start vetting them and usually i'll have you know 10 or 15 that i'll bid on and uh, you know if we end up with four or five out of the sale i'll be excited but uh you know, it's a, it's a process for me. Um, I've been doing it long enough that uh, uh, I feel confident in what I do. And uh, to me, the breeze is the, is the big thing is how they go. Do they look like they're going to stretch out? You know, you see a lot of these horses go 9, 4, and 10 flat. And then you go look at them and they're looking like quarter horses. And you know what you're buying. You're buying a real precocious two-year-old. And uh, generally, my clients don't want that. So, um, you know, I, I, know, I know what I want. I've been doing it long enough. And uh um, uh, that's what my clients want to do. And I've been asking all the guests on the show kind of things that they look for, maybe things that they're more forgiving of. And I'm a little biased with asking this question to you because I've worked for you, uh, shortlisting on the sale. So I know what you're looking for and, um, and, and in particular, and I've learned a lot from you in, in, 
the kind of physical things, but explain a little bit, because I think when you're looking at horses and certain things that you're willing to forgive a little bit physically or on pedigree wise, because I think that's where sometimes you end up with the value and then certain things that are a must have for you as an individual horse. Yeah, the the uh, uh, physical wise, I'm willing to give up a lot. There's just certain things I won't uh, buy. Um, I don't like, uh, you know, the thing that's different for me from being an agent than most agents are 95% of these horses are going to my brother. So I'm going to see him every day and I got to listen to his crap about, uh, you know, what I bought. Uh, so, you know, his big thing is, especially now out in California, and they, they've gotten really, really strict on uh, soundness, which is huge. They should have done this probably 20 years ago. But, uh, you know, they flag them on the track if they don't look good and stuff. And Doug's just like, dude, it's, it's very, very hard for me to keep the big horses um, sound. So, you know, we've kind of gotten away from the Stevie Wonder Boys, uh, who, God, I don't know how he would do now because he, you know, he struggled all along, nothing major, but he always had issues and horses like that are just hard to keep sound. So, you know, we won't probably buy anything over 16 hands. We don't want anything small. Um, I'm an angles guy. I love angles and fetlocks to make sure they're, they're, they look right. I, I won't buy a horse with weak pasterns. Um, I don't really like horses that are straight up behind. Uh, I mean, there's just certain things I, but that, that in saying that, you know, if a horse has got a little bit of a knee offset or he toes out or toes in, that's not a deal breaker for me at all. If they can run through that, then I'm fine with that. But, uh, um, angles are, are, are big to me and I like big butts. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's where they get their power from. And, uh, you know, we like a little meat behind and uh you know and I, I don't like those big thick shoulders you get those big thick shoulders and uh, those horses are really really hard to keep sound too they pound on the ground and gosh it's difficult to keep those going and when you do narrow it down to the ones that you're planning to bid on the atmosphere within the sales ring is is really like nothing else. You get adrenaline rush and excitement, I think, on the racetrack. But for me, and in, in kind of being in that driver's seat of bidding and being there and, and following a horse that you want, describe what that feeling is like when you're bidding on a horse there in the sales ring. It's funny because I'll tell Doug it's like winning a race, and mm-hmm. he doesn't he has no idea what the hell I'm talking about. But uh, uh, you know, one you really really like, and you land on and you buy like. Nyquist, you know, that a lot of times I'll buy horses and I'll pay 80 or 100 or, or a, a good, another good example is Hot Rod Charlie who's running in the Louisiana Derby. I think I paid 120 for him, but he was uh, a horse that I thought he'd be really expensive because he was a half to Matoli, really nice looking horse, but the stallion just w- was, I guess, kept everybody off of him. So that's like the perfect kind of horse for me. And, uh, yeah, like I say, he 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 was just a gorgeous, gorgeous horse. But uh, you know, people got off him because of his pedigree. And getting a chance to bring those home and and start them into the racing after that, all about the full full circle journey coming together. And I wanted to ask about something that you and and Doug have been a really big part of out at Santa Anita and some of the, um, I guess criticism that racing has come under the positive protests and advocating for the workers on the backside and everything that racing does for people that are involved in it. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, Doug's been unbelievable. I wish I could say I had more to do with it than him, but uh, he's put together so many things, all the stuff at Del Mar, the people we protested against and stuff like that was all done by Doug. Doug organized that. He had a mass text and he get all the grooms and hot walkers and the trainers and everybody out protesting with signs. He actually had my mom out there with a sign at Santa Anita. <laughs> so uh, he's done an incredible job with organizing uh, people and, uh, you know, fighting back. It's You look at all these organizations and, and they nobody fights back. And I think that was his thing is, listen, you know, you got to educate people of what's going on here. If people would spend 10 minutes on the backside and see how these horses are pampered, um, that you would change a lot of opinions. And, you know, I know the protesters up north uh, that happened Friday or Saturday or whenever that was, uh, you know, the lady says, uh, well, we got the first race canceled. They're running two races today. So the other race goes at three o'clock. 
So uh, we're going to stick around till the second race is canceled too. And it was like, you know, they had no idea of what was going on. There was, you know, eight races that day and they're just very, very naive and they don't do any research. And it's just very, very frustrating um, to hear their side of it. It's, it's, it. But you can't argue with them because they're, they're not, you know, they kind of deaf to, you know, the facts. And that's what's really, really frustrating. And Doug's tried hard to use his platform as something to publicize and educate people of what we do. And, and Lasix has been such a, you know, big deal with the, the banning of Lasix and uh, all that stuff. So, you know, just trying to, trying to drive the sport forward. The sport that's given all of us so, so much. And um, like you said, if you see what really happens on the backside, so many horsemen and women who care so deeply for these horses and the horses that provide so much opportunity and, and, and work for a variety of people as well. Tell me a little bit, Dennis, about some of the things that maybe you're looking forward to with the stable or some goals for the sale this year. Uh, goals for the sale. Wow. That's a, you know, I never really have goals for the sale. I've gotten to a point where like with the OBS sale, I'll just buy horses and put things together afterwards. I, I got enough people um, now that, you know, I can, you know, piece out horses. So that works out really well. I, I mean, I'm never going to be the guy buying four or $500,000 horses consistently. I'm always looking in that 100, 200, and it's easy for me to, to put those together. So, you know, I've already gone through the catalog a couple times and this should be a really, really good sale for me, the first one coming up. So I'm really, really excited about that. Um, going forward, I, we're really, really excited about Hot Rod Charlie. Obviously, we were so disappointed with a great one the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hot Rod Charlie's training, unbelievable. He goes to Louisiana. I think the race is the 20th, so everybody's going down for that. But uh, right now, he's the, uh, he's the star of the stable and uh, our derby hopeful. And uh, he should run really, really well. Rosario worked him Saturday and got off him, and he was really buzzing about how how well he went. So really excited about him. Well, fantastic. Best of luck with Hot Rod Charlie, and best of luck with the two-year-old sales season kicking off next week. Well, I appreciate it. You do a great job. I listened to the interview last week with Jimbo, and uh, that guy's fantastic. I love him, and... um, It was a great interview, and you do a great job. You're great for the sport. Keep it going. Thanks, Dennis. Much appreciated. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. So pleased to welcome in Crystal Fernung from Journeymanstead, who I really wanted to speak to for quite a while, and I'm very happy to have on today as we'll be talking about a variety of topics, but Crystal, really appreciate you taking the time today. Absolutely. I love being here. Well, coming up uh, next week at the OBS March two-year-old sale, we've been talking a lot about um, on this show buying the horses there and some of what to expect as far as the two-year-olds that will be offered. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that the final hip in the sale is something very special. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, he is. Um, thank and first, thanks to OBS, they have um, heartfelt things. They have been so wonderful to work with. Um, Brent and I had purchased this horse. His name is Clockwork Fury. Um, here in Ocala, we have had three um, equine art auctions that are pieces of art, kind of like the cows in California and uh, other places that have that kind of um, public art display. And we had done one, well, my friends Lori Zink and Paula um, King had done one back in 2000 and, um, they'd raised just shy of a million dollars, um, um, auctioning off these horses. And what we do is we put a call out to artists. Um, they submit, um, designs it's juried, um, through, not through our organization, but through, we hire professionals to jury the artwork. And then the first two, there was actually auctions and, um, uh, the auctioneers from Keeneland, Ryan Mahan and his group had actually run the auction the first two times. Um, this time uh, we did a little bit different, mostly because of COVID and we sold the horses ahead of time. And so um, the um, because of COVID, the um, 
FTBOA who um, takes care of children's grants uh, education and they also do um, the Second Chances uh, Retirement Farm at the Women's Lowell Correctional Institution. They fund that. And because of COVID, they didn't get to do their um, big March gala last year because of that. And they also had to cancel their golf tournament because of mm -hmm. that. And so, you know, took a big financial hit. And when I found out, well, I had sat on the board of the Marion Culture Alliance. And in 2019, we had decided we were going to do another horse fever auction because it was the 20th anniversary. And, um, but we hadn't, you know, hadn't been hit by all this yet. So I got to thinking that maybe we could reintroduce him. He's a really mm -hmm. unique horse. He's not like any of the others. A local artist named Mark Hirschberger um, did him. They're all fiberglass. But what Mark did, um, he had come across this old book um, that had artwork in it from like steampunk kind of stuff from artists from, you know, over the years and it kind of inspired him so what he did was he took him and he cut him up and the inside of him is very like i said very steampunk there's gears and tools and all kinds of stuff in him um back then in 2010 what he did was he had a ipod in him that played um you know like crazy gears going and horses hollering and that kind of stuff. Well, he had set out in front of our office um, for the last 10 years. And because of the way he designed him, everybody who's seen him thinks he's made of metal mm -hmm. because of the way he's putting back together and painted him. And he had like these big bar iron bars for legs. And, you know, the, we used to get a lot of tours through here from all over the world. And everybody always just went crazy for him. So, he had set out there. He'd gone through three hurricanes. He needed some. He needed some TLC. Um, he always had bluebirds that would nest inside of him every year, <laughs> and sit on his ears and down his neck and all. So I had Mark come out last March um, and take a look at him. He took him back to the studio to refurbish him. Um, Tammy Gant, who is with FTBA and runs the gala and um, the golf tournaments and stuff. Um, we had talked about trying to get him into the March gala that year, but then they had to cancel it. So I went to my friend, Lori Zink and said, is there any way that we can reintroduce clockwork theory with this 2020 anniversary edition? And she was like, yes. And so the next step was how do I get him auctioned? And I went to Todd Wojciechowski at OBS and he talked to Todd. They passed it by the to Tommy, they pass it by the board and they agreed. And that's kind of, the, we were off and running. So um, Mark has brought him up to 2020 technology. Now he has a whole fiber optic system in him. Uh, he has a, a whole sound system in him now. Before you had to have him plugged up to um, electric and you can still do that now. But um, he also has a crank in him that you can crank up and he'll generate his own power for like two hours. So cool. If, yeah. if anybody hasn't seen him online, I definitely recommend Googling because the pictures are so cool. I can't imagine what he looks like in person. Yeah. It's really kind of, it's the, there's really no way to do injustice on the yeah. pictures and videos. You just have to be, he's life-sized. He's a, it's a big, it's a big horse. And we did add some extra stuff, like we added some removable handles so he's easier to pick up and move around. He doesn't have to be on a base. He actually has wheels underneath his feet so he could move around. Um, he does so many things. And Mark took one of the bird's nests that was in him and preserved it. This is how talented mm. he is. He made a mechanical bluebird. And wow. he sets, he sits the nest and the bluebird sits in him and you can open this little door and bring it out. And anytime there's a, a noise or you tap the bluebird, his head moves, his wings move, he chirps. Um, he has put all kinds of crystals in him. He has a crystal brain. He has a crystal heart. 
there's lapis and turquoise and all different kinds of um, stones and crystals in him now. His eyes are antique German opera glasses that light up at night because he has a, a screen. His star is a is a solar panel, so you can it charges his eyes at night. So he's just so unique. Um, and because FTBOA could not have their galas and the second chances um, thoroughbred retirement farm at the women's correctional Institute is such, it's just such an important and life changing event. It's the only program like it in the United States. There's no other retirement program that is strictly dedicated to women. It's recidivism rate is like 3%. Mm -hmm. Um, The women, when you talk to them, it's, you know, they have to apply to be in there. One lady we know of that actually, um, unfortunately ended up in there at like 19 or 20 years old, never been around horses her entire life. Um, she got into the program. She graduated, spent her time. She ended up galloping for one of the largest, um, two-year-old consigners here in Ocala. She's now married. She has a children. She has a child. She has a house. I mean, it's, completely changed her life and I've had the privilege to go to uh to the programs at Lowell a couple of times and Mm -hmm. I could not agree more with you just seeing and and hats off to the whole team behind it and and Mr. John Evans that heads the program there and and seeing the effects on it I'm sure in the community as well it's that that program at Lowell is such a huge piece of that oh absolutely and when OBS agreed to do this, um, Chip Hudson with mm-hmm. um, Creech Horse Transportation, because the other um, horse fever horses, there's 15 of them, um, they're moving around to different places. You know, now that they're all painted, they're moving around to different places. And um, Creech Van Lines has donated all the vanning to move them around. And they yeah. go in the stalls just like regular horses and the van <laughs> pulls up and there's all these you know, painted horses' heads sticking out of the stall. Um, and what we're going to do then is, so he's going to go through um, after the last live horse. Um, there he'll go in. We're going to dim the lights a little bit. We're going to show off these fiber optics. We'll bring it back up. Um, our next big step that OBS did for us, we couldn't really use their online bidding process uh, that they've now developed them in mm-hmm. Fasic and Keeneland. But um, what they did allow us to do was we put out on our Horse Fever 2020 event page, there's a link where you can go in and um, it's, a, it's a Google form sheet that you fill out that you're interested And what we'll do is uh, one of the OBS officials will call you about five or 10 minutes before um, he's ready to go in and they'll do phone bids and you can see it um, on their website, just like you can the regular horse sale. You can call in and watch him sell. Um, 50% of the proceeds go to um, Florida Thoroughbred Charities and 50% will go to the Marion Cultural Alliance. And that, was the first horse fever auction that raised almost a million dollars was what um, started Marion Culture Alliance. And just about a month ago, we got um, data showing that Ocala has more public art for people to participate in and see now by, by the size of the, of the area than what Chicago does. Wow. Our arts programs has just exploded here. And, and it's, that was the start of it was that first horse fever auction. And it's, um, it's very much an arts community now Mm -hmm. and lots of murals being, you know, all over the buildings. And there's a first Friday art walk this time of year and artists that can, um, you know, be out in the courtyard and downtown. And it's just, um, it's a really cool place if you really love art. Mm-hmm. And what we're hoping with Clockwork Fury is that he can replace some of those funds that FTC has, has you know, sadly lost over this mm-hmm. last year to help keep the funding going for Second Chances Farm and for Marion Culture Alliance because they both do really 
um, very important work, you know, the, mm -hmm. especially during COVID this year, the, they really worked hard at trying to keep art um, available for people in a safe way, since you couldn't really go anywhere or do anything. And they, we worked really hard at trying to, um, you know, keep that, that going so people can still have a way to interact and enjoy art. And he is, clockwork is so much a piece of artwork that mm -hmm. there's nothing else like him um, anywhere. And I think anybody, A, who loves that kind of steampunk kind of artwork would love him. I personally think he would be really great uh, for somebody, a philanthropic person who wanted to give a really unique, wonderful gift to maybe a museum or a wing of a children's hospital or, mm. you know, something like that. Cause kids just go nuts for him. They just think he's so cool. And he is so cool. And for a long time, he was greeting everybody, uh, at, at journeyman stud, um, and kind of your, your welcome uh, official, if you will, very cool way to welcome people in. Um, as we continue, of course, the conversation with Clockwork, I think a perfect segue into just talking a little bit about the operation that you and your husband Brent run there in Ocala. And especially, I think, if, for anybody that follows Florida racing, Cozan stands there and, and uh, of course, Wildcat Air and the legacy that he left when he was alive. Tell me a little bit about the operation that Clockwork Fury was guarding for all those years well we um we started with 14 stallions and and now we're down with um a manageable size four <laughs> we're really um proud of the stallions that we stand um ocala's got a long history of making stallions successful and you know they go off to kentucky and become even more successful but um we t firmly believe that there's a mare population here to support a roster of stallions um, that, you know, if they may, if there's no reason that they have to go to Kentucky. You know, there's plenty of mares here to support them. Cozon has just really, um, you know, we really, like Brent said, we, we pushed all of our chips in the middle of the table when we, when we went to, to acquire him. And we were really lucky enough that we, um, we have a wonderful partnership. The people that bought him and raced him is in his racing career. Al Shakab has stayed in, um, and they've supported him very well with mares. We went to, um, Marilyn and Gil Campbell with Stonehenge farm. Uh, they've got such a wonderful band of mares and they race pretty much 95% of their crop. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, and then us, and we've, really supported him with our broodmare band and he has not um he has not disappointed us you know he's really yeah. done well um last year we bred him to 181 mares he had 164 of them in full by the end wow. of the year um and then saint patrick's day we got the next year he's a full brother to american pharaoh mm -hmm. and um his first foals are just hitting the ground and they're they're really nice foals, long-legged, scopy, good hips, strong shoulders. Um, I spent a couple of weeks running around to different parts of the county getting pictures of them so we can get an ad campaign started for them. Um, you can't fault his pedigree or Cozans. They're just, the female families are so strong on those two stallions. And then around Christmas time, we had... Um, Chester Thomas of that has allied racing contacted us about Mr. Money is a golden mm -hmm. fence, um, horse. And he was a very prolific runner, made a million three, um, at three. Well, he broke his maiden as a two-year-old, um, and then was fourth in the breeders cup. And then he came back as a three-year-old and won four graded stakes in a row, which was the grade three pad day. And, um, the Indiana Derby, the West Virginia Derby, and his fifth start, um, he just got caught at, at the wire in the million dollar grade one Pennsylvania Derby. Mm -hmm. So, um, very talented, talented racehorse, um, beat some really outstanding stakes winners. And he's probably one of those kind of stallions. That's just that physical 
makeup, mm-hmm. but there's not a mare you can't breed him to. You know, he's just he's just so well balanced. So we're really thrilled. And Chester is doing just like we did with Kozan. He's sent about 20 mares in here so far that he's breeding to him. So he's going to support him. And that is invaluable when it comes to making a stallion to have a stallion owner that mm-hmm. will will really help support his horse. And he's definitely doing that. You mentioned a little bit about keeping stallions here in the state of Florida and, and about growing that program. How important is that? And and what do you kind of look at as the strength of the, the Florida breeding industry right now? Well, um, we had an interview um, this last month and Brent made a very interesting point was this, this is the way it was always done in Florida, whether it was Lassiter Farm or Um, Mockingbird or Tartan, you know, those, they all had um, outstanding stallions and made those stallions by supporting them and breeding their mares to them. Mm -hmm. The reason that we went to the Campbells, um, and they're also in partnership with us on on St. Patrick's Day, is that we understood that you had to have that ownership that really was going to put the mares behind um, behind the stallions and help make them. The Campbell's race, we sell mostly two-year-olds, Al Shakab races. So you have to be able to to cover the gamut. You can't, it's hard to have a stallion that the, that the majority of his horses are going to go into yearling and two-year-old sales because you don't have, you know, that performance proven by people who were, are willing to race. Mm-hmm. So by the time his, um, his first crop of two-year-olds came around, you know, the Campbells were already, you know, they were already at the racetrack and they were, you know, starting to take off and run. And, and it's, it puts a, shines a different light on your stallion that when, when people can go to a sale and they know that, that the horse is being, supported by people who are going to do it in a a various amount of ways. Like Mm -hmm. this year we have, there's a lot of people who race that are sending mares in to breed to him. It's not just people who are going to be selling yearlings and two-year-olds. So Mm -hmm. that, um, that's a long history. It's like the history of Florida, the way stallions have been made here. Um, It's not, you're not, you're not dependent on having to sell contracts to, to be able to support your stallion in the more, a little more difficult years, like their, you know, their third and fourth year. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's been amazing to see just the, the kind of meteoric rise of Kozan as well. And you mentioned um, how he didn't disappoint in me working at Gulfstream. I've gotten to see quite a lot of them and they run on anything, which I'm sure is yeah. also a big benefit for sure. But, um, but tell me a little bit about with the, the two-year-old sales season kicking off. Uh, now throughout the next few months throughout this year what are some of the things maybe we can look for and expect from journeyman stud well you're going to see cozons for sure (laughs) (laughs) and uh, brent does all the training so we don't have anything in the march sale all of ours are going to be in april and june Mm -hmm. and um, we don't really sell a lot for other people we do sell some for you know people we have a history with but mainly it's uh, mainly it's our own and um we kind of we really do it all. We, Brent and I still do all the foaling and we, you know, we raise, we, we sell as yearlings, we sell as two-year-olds. So we do, we do pretty much everything, you know, in the horse business. We're not just, um, you know, two-year-old salesmen or we don't just sell as yearlings. It's, you know, we do a little bit of everything. And, um, like I said, with Brent doing all the training, we're, very much hands-on and you know next year um or the following year we'll you know we'll be bringing the saint patrick's days along but right now it's um it's mostly cozons that we're going to be we're going to be showcasing in march and april looking forward to seeing those and a, a special one to go through the obs march two-year-old sale that's clockwork fury remind everybody crystal where people can go if they're interested in following or perhaps interested in bidding on this uh, very special piece of art well you can always call our office at journeyman stud and it's 352-629-1200 
Again, 352-629-1200. And if it's after office hours, especially this time of year, it mm-hmm. goes straight to my cell phone. So if you're calling to book a mayor, I, I get you. Um, they can call um, FTBOA and 352-629-2160 and talk to Tammy Gant. You can find us on the um, on Facebook. It's Horse Fever 2020. And um, there's all kinds of information on there. The Blood Horse has been kind enough to give us a lot of coverage, and so is the Thoroughbred Daily News. And there's several magazine articles. There's lots of videos if you want to see what he does. And, um, you know, I, again, can't thank OBS enough for everything that they've done to help us pull this off. Very excited to see Clockwork Fury in the sales ring. Best of luck and best of luck with the the live horses uh, selling coming up. Crystal Fernung, thank you so much. Really love speaking to you today. You too. Thank you very much. And that will do it for another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. Appreciate you tuning in today and very much appreciate my two excellent guests, Dennis O'Neill and Crystal Fernung. A reminder, tune in to the OBS sales uh, live stream. You can watch it on their website. And the final hip going through will be Clockwork Fury, that incredible work of art and for two wonderful causes. Really love to get a chance to talk about his story a little bit. And I hope that you will follow along if you're not interested and perhaps bidding on the super cool Clockwork Fury. Definitely take a look and check him out. But looking forward to the sale coming up. There's a lot of big things coming up. And just want to mention um, some news from our friends at Lone Star Park. Nominations are open for Lone Star Park's Lone Star Million Day card, Memorial Day, Monday, May 31st. It'll be here before we know it. That's five stakes totaling $1.1 million. The Grade 3 Sexton Mile purse is increasing from 300000 to 400000 Lone Star Million Day and the Ouija Board Distaff return after a 10-year hiatus, which is exciting. There's also three new stakes, the Texas Derby, Chamberlain Bridge, and the Memorial Day Sprint, and they're all free to nominate. Nominations close Saturday, May 22nd. So we'll be reminding you of all of that good stuff from our friends over at Lone Star Park. In the meantime, I'll have one more episode coming out right before the sale, but things really do kick off the Under Tax Show. I'm um, starting on Thursday of this week. Make sure you follow along with everything. It'll be a lot of fun. I hope you continue to listen and share, send suggestions. That's it for now. We'll see you next time on In the Ring with Acacia Courtney.